Uh, let's go Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. If you don't own a Bible, there uh, are also some physical ones uh, in the little racks underneath the seats. If you reach in front of you and down, I know it's kind of an awkward motion, but just grab the paperback Bible that's down there. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that one home. Please let that be our gift to you. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe that God uses it to breathe life into a weary soul and give rest. Uh, we believe it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, please, please, please take that one home and start reading. It's, it's advantageous to us in that moment. Um, so Matthew chapter 28, we're going to take a break from our Ephesians series for uh, a few weeks um, because we've got some special stuff planned. Uh, we want to look at some stuff that we claim that we value around here, uh, stuff that uh, we say drives a lot of what we do. Uh, for those of you who are here, probably most everybody here is familiar with what we would call our mission statement. I know we have some visitors in the room, so for you visitors, uh, we have a three- point or threefold mission statement that says this, that we want to be a church that knows God, loves one another, and hey, we got some good church members. All right. Knows God, loves one another, and serves in the world. So what we want to do is to spend the next three, week, three weeks kind of zeroing down on each one of those facets, each one of those things, and talk about uh, why it's important to us, why we think it ought to be important to us, what kinds of things they, they drive around here and influence and affect around here, and those kinds of things. And so we're going to take a break from our Ephesians series just for a few weeks and spend the next three weeks talking about why we value what we value. But first got to ask a question. Are mission statements a good thing? Yes or no? Yes. You sure? Do mission statements in and of themselves have any intrinsic moral value? The answer is no, right? You can have good mission statements and bad mission statements, but that's really only because they highlight good values and bad values, right? Mission statements are nothing more than a tool to put language to something, right? Yeah, like, you, it doesn't matter. You could get a team of people together and craft a mission statement for your organization, and you can wordsmith that sucker, all right? And you can, you can have your little committee of people exegete culture and, and figure out how best to word things for your group of people, and you can have a committee of people and an audience of people who think that that's the best mission statement they have literally ever read in their lives. But if your mission statement says that you value drop-kicking puppies, wordsmithing is not going to help you in that moment, right? Or at least I hope not. I hope there's not a way of sugarcoating the drop-kicking puppies mission. And so mission statements don't have any intrinsic moral value, but they can be a helpful tool, right? They can put language to, words to, the things that you value and chase after. Here's another question. Did Jesus command his followers to craft mission statements? Like, can we turn to a place in one of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and find Jesus' opinion on mission statements? So what did Jesus command his people to do? Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Let's look at it real quick. Matthew 
starting in verse 18. It's the middle of the paragraph. And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples and those who would gather with them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so Jesus commands his followers to go and make disciples all right so he's got like one last little thing to accomplish before he sends into heaven he's he's handled the whole uh you know disciple his guys for about three years thing all right he has handled the whole die on the cross as an atonement sacrifice for our sins so we can be reconciled to the father thing he has accomplished the whole rise from the dead to be a a verification or a vindication of his righteousness thing you know just a couple minor errands to to establish and then he says as he gathers his boys together right before he ascends into heaven i've got one last job for you your job from now on he tells them is to make other followers of me and to teach them every single thing i've taught you to obey and he bases this command on the fact that he has authority in all of heaven and earth. And if you're keeping score, that means that Jesus has all the authority. He says, because I have all this authority, your job from now on is to go teach other people to obey what I've taught you to obey. The command to make other followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus... Is so intrinsic to being a follower of Jesus, we could say it this way, that for those operating outside of this command, maybe they're not actually following him. This isn't, this isn't a tip. This isn't a, a suggestion. This is a command by our Lord, right? So how do mission statements play into all that? Well, we say here over and over again, you're probably getting tired of hearing me say it, that we have one job to do, right? Our one job is to make disciples of all nations. And everything we do as a church body individually and everything we do as a church body collectively either helps the accomplishment of that one job or it's a distraction and a waste of our time and resources, right? So how do mission statements play into that? Well, either A, it helps us in the accomplishment of our one job, or B, it's a distraction and a waste of our time and our resources, right? Whether it's mission statements in general or our mission statement in particular, it either serves the one job or it's a distraction from the one job. We want to be a church that knows God, loves one another, and serves in the world. See, mission statements, whether they're for churches or for anybody else, should never exist in and of themselves, right? Mission statements have no intrinsic moral value. On a, they're, they're not intrinsically good, but hear me, they're, they're also not intrinsically bad either, right? So a mission statement can be a good thing. It can also very easily be a not good thing. 
but when it helps us make disciples of all nations, well, in that moment, it's an especially good thing, isn't it? So you all ready to look at why we value knowing God? Flip to your left to Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7. See, when mission statements help us accomplish the greater aim of making disciples, they can be a good thing, but we have to define the word help, don't we? Like, like what do we mean by help us accomplish? Well, how do we measure how we're doing on the making disciples thing? Like, what you got on that, right? Like, it's pretty easy to, to do the make new disciples part. That's just simple addition. One, and then another one, and then another one. But how do we, how do we measure the teach them everything that I've taught you thing? How do we measure that? Well, in comes a mission statement. We want to be a church that knows God. We want to be a church that's known for knowing God. And I don't think there's any church dumb enough to say, well, that's not important to us. So it seems like pretty easy stuff. For Nashville Baptist Church, our mission statement is nothing more than a grid, the next step down the pipe to help us measure how we're doing on the command to make disciples of all nations. But knowing God is a lot easier to, to talk about than it is to do, isn't it? So we're going to look at this morning what it means to know God. Start in verse 15. This is a part of what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, a long-form sermon by Jesus uh, that even some of the most secular people in our culture can probably quote pieces of. Uh, some of the most memorable things that Jesus said and we have recorded are things that are recorded for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus teaches about a bunch of different things, and he's got a bunch of different things in view. But if you want to give an overarching theme, it's that, that, Jesus, that God sees on a heart level rather than just the surface level. And that he judges us, holds us accountable on the heart level rather than just the surface level, right? All right? But it's the end of his sermon here that really is, is what we're going to focus on this morning. So he starts to wrap things up in verse 15. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree, well, it bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Okay, so Jesus' overarching scope in the Sermon on the Mount is to point out that, that God sees us and holds us accountable on a heart level, that it doesn't matter how much you pretty yourself up on the outside, that God sees things under the surface, and you ought to be concerned about the under the surface part, right? That's, that's the overarching point of Matthew 5 and 6 in the first half of 7. And then in verse 15, there's a shift. See, even while it's possible to pretty yourselves up to a flawless extent on the outside and still be far from God on the inside, Jesus says that at the end of the day, you can tell who belongs to him and who doesn't because there's fruit in their lives, right? Right? He frames it in the context of healthy trees and bad trees, diseased trees. He says that, that healthy trees produce healthy fruit. 
And that bad trees produce significantly less than healthy fruit, right? There's all this debate over what fruit is, and, and sometimes people want to take it off into this weird thing, but Jesus says, hey, listen, there's either health here or there's not. One of the reasons why knowing God, quote-unquote, is in our mission statement, as in a metric, a, a, a grid to help us measure how we're making disciples of all nations, one of the reasons knowing God is in there is because Jesus himself just said that that's the only context that real disciples are actually made. You can't make disciples with unhealthy fruit. Unhealthy fruit aren't disciples. He says, at the end of the day, you can tell who belongs to me. You can tell who bears my name by watching what their lives produce. And either they're producing healthy things or they're not producing healthy things. They're producing diseased things. Jesus says that disciples are made. Fruit is produced in the context of someone who belongs to him. To know God is to produce other disciples. It's one of the things that we, we value around here, knowing God is a part of our mission statement because that's the context that new disciples can actually occur. But Jesus is not done talking. Let's keep reading. Verse 21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All right, so let, let's paraphrase this so we're all on the same page here jesus just said that there's going to come a day in the future where lots of people who have worked their tails off to do mighty amazing works spiritual sounding spiritual looking works did you catch some of the things on that list that they're going to prophesy i can't do that they're going to cast out demons can't do that that they're going to do what he calls many mighty works, all in his name. They're going to work, and they're going to work, and they're going to work, and they're going to move the needle on some spiritual issues in our culture and our world, right? Everybody's going to celebrate how great and how excellent and how beneficial they were to the kingdom of God, and he's going to go, who the heck are you? I don't know you. He's going to tell them, all your great works are nothing but lawlessness to me. Just sit and stew in that for a second. Jesus himself says that there's going to be a day where lots of people who have spent their entire lives doing things that they thought were pleasing to God, but because they were far from him, all those things that were supposed to be pleasing are actually something that separates them further from him. prophecy, cast out demons, many mighty works, who cares? They will work 
and work. They will give themselves sacrificially. They will make a difference, but Jesus has no idea who they are. Over the next two weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time fleshing out loving one another and serving in the world. We're going to spend time trumpeting and celebrating why we believe that God calls us to do both of those things well, and we, we're going to spend time encouraging others. Maybe, maybe you have a different church home, but we think you ought to do those things well in other places. We think everybody should love one another well and serve in the world well. That is something that we are passionate about here. But Jesus himself just said that we can nail those two things and miss the knowing him part. And it's not so good. Hear me in Nashville Baptist Church. We're going to spend the next two weeks celebrating what God calls us to do in those other two avenues. But if we nail two-thirds of this, if we absolutely knock it out of the park, but we miss this part. There's lots of well-meaning people that are going to end up in hell. We can be flawless at the other two. But Jesus either knows our name or he doesn't. One of the reasons why knowing God is a part of our mission statement is because at the end of the day, that's the one that matters most. And that's certainly the reason why it's first. Right? If we tag knowing God on the end of all of the other things we value around here, well, at the end of the day, we've ultimately failed. And we didn't actually accomplish the other two. This is why we make a gigantic deal about giving you opportunities to press into knowing God more deeply here. This is why this takes the lion's share of our time. This is why we have reading lists available and Bible reading plans. This is why we uh, have a board out in the, the foyer hallway space over there that gives you opportunities to press in. This is why we have a bunch of different Bible studies. This is why we spend most of our time on a Sunday morning opening up and proclaiming God's word. Listen, I like to sing but we need something deeper than that. If we nail the other two, but we miss this one, tragedy. We value knowing God here because that's the only one that'll actually get you in the door with him. You can't love one another to an extent that you're on a relationship level with Jesus. You can't serve in the world to a great enough extent that you have a relationship with Jesus. We nail the other two, but we miss the knowing God part. We have failed as a church. But Jesus is still not done talking. Verse 24. Remember, this is still the very end of a sermon. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rocks, on, on the rock, excuse me. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount, or actually let me finish reading the last couple of verses. Verse 29, or 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, uh, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Excuse me. So Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount, one, the, the sermon that we probably give the title of the greatest, most important sermon in all of human history, right? Like, is anybody, is anybody going above that one? Like, I, I value myself as a preacher, right? I want, to be, I want to be a good preacher. I'm not touching that one, right? The most valuable, most important sermon in all of human history, Jesus closes that sermon by going, listen, you're either someone who listens to me and does what I say, or you're not. Go home. Like, if you're, if you're the application person, like, you, you want the guy to, to spell it out for you and do these three things, Jesus ain't that guy. He says, he says, you're either doing what I'm saying or you're not doing what I'm saying. And he frames it in the context of a storm, something we're hearing lots about right now. He says, you can build and build and build and build and build. You can, uh, you can construct the best place, the, the most sound-looking construction. You can decorate it so it's the prettiest house on the block. But at the end of the day, the wind is going to start to blow. And the floodwaters are going to rise. And no matter how fancy that house looks, no matter how long you worked on it, if the foundation is poor, goodbye house. He says you can build and you can build and you can build and you can build and you can build. But if at the end of the day, you built it on a foundation that is not eternal, that is not as resolute as I am, Say bye-bye, because the house ain't going to stand. Another reason why knowing God comes before our other values is because that's the only context that the other two can actually be sustainable in. Loving one another sounds really great, but you can also hear that in a kindergarten class. Right? Got a kindergarten teacher over the back, she's smiling. You're going to hear it trumpeted from all kinds of folks in this world. Right? And sometimes, sometimes even their, their definition of loving one another even lines up with ours. Like, the, Bible, the Bible's definition of love very often looks incredibly different, diametrically opposed even sometimes to the way the culture around us would define the word love. But sometimes, sometimes it, it lines up. You can find people that line up with a version of love one another that looks a little bit like the Bible. But the floodwaters are always going to rise. And the wind's always going to blow. It's always going to beat against that house. And great was the fall of it. You put two sinners in a room long enough, they're going to start a fight. Married people know this. It's what happens. Doesn't matter how selfless we act for a while, eventually the selfishness comes out, right? There are things that I want that, that Katie Woodard does not want, all right? Sometimes she has a list, all right? But here's the thing. 
You put two people in a room long enough, and they're going to start a fight. You can love, and you can love, and you can love. But at the end of the day, if they're not both chasing after, grounded in something that's eternal, love's going to fall apart, yo. Love's going to fall apart. Eventually, the selfishness will win out. The wind will blow, the waters will rise, and chaos will ensue. But for those who know God deeply, who are grounded in Him, solidified in Him, bolted down to Him, they exist, live, operate in a context where neither one of them are movable. Like you... You, you want me to call time out, a little sidebar? You want a healthy marriage? Because you went to counseling. Because you're both chasing Jesus together. The only thing that will sustain you in that moment. The, the only fuel for loving one another that has any hope of lasting beyond the first fight or the second fight or the 1,000th fight is Jesus. All other fuels ultimately run out. Serving in the world sounds great too, right? But you can also hear that at the local civic group. Let's go do some great stuff in our city. Let's fundraise and pour into and do great things. Sometimes. Sometimes the world's version of serve looks very much like the Bible's. Now, there's a lot of times that those definitions are diametrically opposed to each other. But sometimes they line up. You can hear about serving the world in the civic group or whatever, summer camp, whatever you want to plug in there. But eventually, the wind will blow. And the floodwaters will come rising. And great is the fall of it. Eventually, you're going to find somebody who rejects your service or takes advantage of it. Soon, you're going to come to a point where you're exhausted and you don't know how you're going to do it anymore. And you either have a fuel source that is eternal, eternal and doesn't run out, or you're operating on a fuel source that does find yourself getting exhausted with the things you're called upon? The only context in which serving in the world has any hope of lasting is the context where Jesus itself is the fuel that it runs on. We want to be a church that knows God and is known for knowing God. Not because it's a because we want to be a bigger church or a better church. We, we, we want to do those things, but this isn't a, a strategy for helping us grow. This isn't a strategy for, for helping us streamline. This is a strategy for helping us press into God. We press into God. We, we value knowing God because not only is that the place where, where ministry happens, not only is that the place where disciples are made, but that's the, that's the place where life is found. We value knowing God. Because at the end of the day, it changes everything else in our existence. And when we do that one well, we don't have to work so hard at the other ones. 
Don't mishear me. It's not that there's not work. There are practical steps, pragmatic approaches even sometimes to loving one another well and serving in the world. But if we, if we get the knowing God part right, all those other two are way easier because they, it becomes the lifeblood flowing into those things, creating context and, and fruit for those things. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to press into a God who isn't just knowable, but desires to be known. Right? Like this isn't a game of where's Waldo here. He's, he's given us the scriptures. He's given us a church body. He's given us prayer. He's given us extra biblical resources. Quit sticking your toe in the shallow end of the pool to test the temperature and jump in the deep end. Jump in the deep end and discover that God is a God who longs to, wants to be discovered. Wants to be known. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to press into a God through the means by which he's given us to press into him and chase, chase diligently and find him. We want to be a church that helps you pursue knowing God deeply. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're a Christian. You've been hanging out for a while, checking us out. Maybe today's the day you press in. We're talking about what we value as a, as a church body. Maybe today's the day where God calls you to say, this is the one I want you a part of. In a second, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be a time for you to, to respond in some kind of way. Whatever God's leading you to do, we're up here to talk. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. Man, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. We want to be a church that helps you chase. Maybe today is the day that for the very first time, you will repent of your sin and come to him as Lord. You will become a follower of Jesus. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some people up here to talk if that's helpful for you. But in God's goodness, let us press into him this morning. Father God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for being a God who is knowable. Thank you for being a God who desires to be known, who gives us opportunity to press in and know you. God, we want to be a church that, that knows you and is known for knowing you, God. God, in all the things that we organize as a church body, whether it's leadership or all of us just playing our role, would, would you point us to the deeper reality, the greater, more eternal, far more joy-producing reality of knowing you? And let the other stuff come when it may. God, in all the things that we do here, May the thing we be most known for, that this is, a, this is a place where you are found. May those of us who know you this morning be a people who put you on display. God, would you save people this morning? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you call people to repentance? Would you breathe faith into them? 
Would you help them see you as you are? You're a God that when we come to know you, we are forever changed by you. So in your name we pray.